Good evening. Today is Wednesday, August 18th, and we are studying the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This week's chapter is the doctor's opinion, and our speaker tonight is Kim G. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you so much, Melissa. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Kim G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from the South Jersey area right outside of Philadelphia. Um, I've been in OA since 1994, um, which is literally half my life. I've been in for 27 years and I am 54 years old. Um, I have been at my top size, a, a size 24, um, at my bottom size, a size two. And I've also been the size I am now, which is a size 10, binging and purging and over-exercising. So I have uh, researched every facet of this uh, disease. And, and in fact, one of the things I like to talk about with the doctor's opinion um, is that what, what, how you guys open your meeting and Melissa said, are there any other compulsive overeaters here besides myself? I would raise my hand like everybody did. But what I realized is before I really became a student of the big book and I started to study this book, what I was raising my hand to was I'm fat and I know want to be no longer want to be fat or I'm no longer fat and I'm terrified of getting fat again. Um, I didn't understand what I suffered from. So if I didn't understand what I suffered from, I had no idea what the solution was. So the doctor's opinion really gave me a clear idea of why I qualified for Overeaters Anonymous. You know, our third tradition says all we need is a desire to stop um, eating to be a member, but it doesn't mean we're a real compulsive overeater. You know, um, every, I, I, spoiler alert, diets work. You know, if you're overweight and you decrease your calories and you exercise, you're going to lose weight. I personally have, you know, gotten down to a, my goal weight dozens of times, always put it back on. That's one of the reasons I became underweight. Cause I would just, I, I kept wanting to get lower and lower. Cause I knew I was going to put weight back on. Um, I've also been abstinent hundreds of times, but I continue to eat. So why is that? And I heard my truth in this doctor's opinion. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the doctor's opinion, uh, Dr. Silkworth is a neurologist actually, that in the 1929 uh, stock market crash, lost all his money and he needed a job. So he got a job at, at a hospital in um, Charles Townsend Hospital in New York. And it's estimated he treated about 50,000 alcoholics. And he noticed there were different types. There was a certain type that would come in from the consequences of their drinking and he would dry them out and he would never see, ever see them again. There was another type that they would come in from the consequences of their drinking and they'd come back maybe a second or third time. And he would sit them down and say, you know what? It looks to me like once you start drinking, you can't control it. My suggestion is if you never take that first drink, you won't have problems. And he never saw them again. To me, I'm a kid of the eighties. To me, that's the Nancy Reagan philosophy. You know, if I could just, just say no, I would have said no decades ago. Um, but what he saw, there was a certain classification. I call it the 10%. I think it's supposed to be more like 13% or something that no matter how many times he dried, dried them out physically, and no matter how many times he explained the consequences, if they drank again, they would go back to the alcohol over and over and over. And that's who Alcoholics Anonymous is made for. Alcoholics Anonymous is not made for people who have drinking problems. They're not made for the 90% of the kids that I went to college with that got trashed every weekend. When college stopped, most of them stopped, or a couple of years later, most of them stopped, or some of them had some real consequences and you had to use willpower to stop. That's not who AA is made for. It's the same thing. OA is not made for people who are fat. OA is not made for people that maybe even have go through periods of life where they're bulimic or they're underweight. What the language that is used in, the, in doctor's opinion, um, for example, the type I had come to regard as hopeless. 
the type whom other methods had failed, the chronic alcoholic, we're gonna hear in later chapters, as seriously alcoholic as we were, an alcoholic of our type. So I need to know what does that 10% look like? And what I'm asking myself is, do I qualify into that 10%? Because if I do, then I'm gonna to need to read the rest of the book. If I don't, maybe a conventional diet program will work for me. So if we go to the doctor's opinion, if you have the fourth edition, it's in the Roman numeral, Roman number 28. Um, they first talk about this allergy, which is really important for me. Um, uh, it says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics, right? The 10% is a manifestation of an allergy and that phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So when I think of an allergy, I think of, you know, getting a runny nose, scratchy throat, maybe breaking out in a rash. And I'm looking at the way I eat and I'm like, I eat enough pasta for a family of 10. I'm not having any of those reactions. And what I didn't realize is the fact that I'm eating enough pasta for a family of 10 is my allergic reaction. The simplest definition of an allergy is an abnormal, exaggerated reaction. The fact that I can sit down and eat enough pasta for a family of 10 is an exaggerated, abnormal reaction. So I don't know if um, anybody here is alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic. Even though I drank alcoholically, but the consequences were enough that I stopped drinking. So I didn't need AA. Is if I sat down with an alcoholic and we both had five shots of tequila, we'd both get drunk because that is the normal response to alcohol. But what happens to me is I feel a little bit sick, a little bit nauseous, a little bit tipsy, a little bit out of control. I don't like that feeling. So I'm not going to want any more alcohol. The alcoholic gets a charged up, excited, woo, got to have more feeling. And they're going to run out and they're going to get more alcohol. So if nine out of 10 people react like me and one out of 10 people react like the alcoholic, it just means they're having an abnormal reaction. This was really important to me because it took all the guilt and the shame away from being a compulsive overeater. You know, it's not about poor moral character. It's not about willpower. I just react differently to this substance than other people. This explained to me when I was a kid and I'd go to a birthday party and I'd have my piece of cake and I'd be sitting there hoping the mom's gonna say, does anybody wanna help clean up? Cause I wanna go in the back kitchen with the rest of the cake, right? And I'm watching my little girlfriend across the table and she's having half a piece of cake and she doesn't, and she's not, and she's all of a sudden she's engaged with other little girls. And I'm thinking, why don't I have that willpower? And what I realize now is she didn't have willpower. She wasn't having more cake because she didn't want any more cake. You know, when I heard people say it's too sweet, I'm too full. I thought they were lying because I never had that experience. So that's what was happening. And in fact, if she had more cake, she might be a little bit sick, a little bit nauseous, and she doesn't like that feeling the same way I do with alcohol. So what I so what is that 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 allergic reaction that's really important? See, because when you go into an AA meeting and they say get sober, everyone knows what that means, right? You come into OA and they say get abstinent. Everyone on this line, we have 44 people right now. Everyone has the same definition of abstinence. We have to abstain from those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors which create the phenomenon of craving. However, what creates it in me may not create it in you, and that's where there's some confusion. 
So when you're listening to a meeting, what happens often, which is normal, natural, someone will talk about eating a Snickers bar and you're like, oh no, that means I'm not supposed to have a Snickers bar. Or someone's talking about eating bread. I'm not supposed to eat bread. What we need to do is we need to look at how are they describing that their body reacts when they eat the Snickers bar or when they eat the bread? What are the foods, ingredients, and behaviors that I eat that I react that way? The way I like to describe it is I cannot reasonably predict what's gonna happen. Because if it's binging every time, there are foods I don't binge every time, you know, just because there's nothing left. But this, it's I just can't predict. So one of the examples I use is, is I love tomatoes. But if you tell me, Kim, have one tomato every day, no more, no less for 30 days, I can easily make that money as much as I love a tomato. However, if you told me to have two slices of pizza every day, no more, no less for 30 days, and I'll give you a million dollars, I'd never make that money. Why? Because there's something different when I ingest a pizza that I can't predict what's going to happen. A beautiful way I heard it described is that when I ingest my binge foods, my ingredients, or engage in my behaviors, the first bite asks for the second bite. The second bite requires the third bite. And the third bite demands the fourth bite. That explained to me why the first couple Oreos, pizza, whatever your deal is. <sighs> but then I'm three, four sleeves in eating the cookies. I don't even taste them. Because that it's happening is that feeling intensifies and it never satisfies. And that is unique to us. What I realized now is people looked at me and saw what the food was doing to me and were wondering why the heck I was doing it. But what was happening is I knew what the food was doing for me and I had no idea why they weren't doing it. So I have to identify what those foods are. We go down to the bottom of that page, it kind of reiterates that. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. Their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. So I'm craving that effect. So I'm looking at, you know, what are those foods that I'm going to barter? I'm going to negotiate and I'm going to grieve over. I cried for days when someone helped me identify that flour was one of my binge ingredients. I thought I could never go to a restaurant because I never noticed anything on the menu that didn't have flour in it. And there's plenty of stuff in the, in the menu that doesn't have flour in it. But because my mind is elusive, because I cannot differentiate the truth from the false, my belief was there's, I can never eat in a restaurant again if I don't eat flour. So I have to identify when I go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, what are those foods that I get angry that they're running low on? And what are those foods that I could care less whether they're there? When I go to a grocery store, what are those aisles that I have memorized? And what are those aisles that I have no idea what's down them? And I can work with someone who's recovered to help me identify those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors. This is for me personally. It's so much easier to get down to ingredients than trying to play whack-a-mole with a hundred different foods. All I have to do is turn a label over. So for example, sugar is one of my binge foods. Love tomatoes, love salsa. Go to the regular shelves, hard to find a salsa without sugar in it. Not even because they're sweetening it. It's just a good preservative, which allows the salsa to stay longer on the shelf and then they'll make more money. 
But if I go to the refrigerated section, section, there's plenty of salsas without sugar on it. So I can have them. So it's not that I'm allergic to salsa. I'm allergic to the way it's prepared. So by getting it down to ingredients, I'm able just to turn labels over. And if that was just my problem, then honestly, rehabs would kick out 100%, right? Because what do they do? They separate us from our food or alcohol or drugs or gambling or sex, whatever it is we have an allergy to. And they could just sit us down and say, you know what? Don't do that. You'll be good. So why is it that rehabs don't work? The rest of the paragraph is going to let us know that. It says they are restless, irritable, discontented, unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So restless, irritable, discontent is really what happens when we're not eating. I heard an AA speaker say, I know I'm an alcoholic, not by when I'm drinking, by when I'm not drinking. Because once the food is down, life gets loud and I don't know how to shut it up except to have the food and everything will get quieted down again. That sense of ease ease and comfort comes at once. You know, I remember when I first graduated college and I had a job, I live with my parents because can't afford rent and, and binge foods, right? So I'm living with my parents. I, on the way home, stop at a grocery store, get a big tub of icing, and I get in line, I can feel my shoulders relaxing, just knowing the icing is in the basket. And when I get to the register, I throw like M&Ms or something on there because I can't even imagine going from the grocery store to my parents' house without having something in my mouth. Because I do, I get that. I worked all hard all day, the anxiety of trying to pretend I knew what I was doing and they're gonna figure out I'm a fraud and oh my God, oh my God. And that relief came at once. Food was my solution. It wasn't my problem. And I, that's why that's the commonality, right? Why I can go to an AA meeting, not be an alcoholic and totally identify in. Not because of the allergy, but because the way that they feel sober is the way I feel abstinent. I have an uncomfortability with life. So what happens with me is I get, you know, like put the food down day one or two, I'm pretty good because I had enough running through me. Day three to five, three to seven, three to 10, I'm freaking dying. That's a physical withdrawal. And then I go to a meeting, you know, 10, 14 days in, and I'm telling everyone in the meetings, whoo, God, remove the obsession. In reality is God didn't do squat because I haven't done squat. What's happening is I'm feeling the freedom from the allergy not being triggered. For me personally, it's sleeping a little bit better. You know, I'm not as reactive, that food fog starting to lift. And maybe I even make it to my 30-day coin. But day 32, 34, 35, day 45, I'm crawling up the walls. And I'm, I want to shoot my brains out. And I'm saying I'm craving the food more than ever. I'm not craving the food. If I haven't ingested it, I can't be craving it. What I'm feeling is untreated compulsive overeating. What I'm feeling is what life is like when there's no buffer between me and life. Because food was my buffer between me and life. So I that's the cycle. Thank you. So that cycle is continuing on the same page after they have succumbed to the desire again. I love the definition of succumb, yield to a superior force. I don't know about you all, but a brownie's never just jumped in my mouth. I've always succumbed. I don't slip. I don't have an accidental fall. I am restless, irritable, discontent. The obsession comes on and I am compelled 
to eat that food and succumb to the desire. That's that obsession, that persistent, disturbing preoccupation. Then the phenomenon of craving develops. So I only develop the phenomenon of craving after I've ingested the food. We go through the well-known stages of a spree, <sighs> emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat again. Swear to God, this is going to be different Monday morning, beginning of the month, 2021, post-pandemic, I'm going to get my crap together, right? I'm going to get it. And this pattern is going to happen over and over and over and over, unless I have an entire psychic change. So in that 1940 preamble, it talks about absolute absence, the second meaning of AA. So we see on page XXX, it talks about that the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. The only way that I'm going to get relief from the allergy is to not ingest the food. Entire abstinence. No weaning off, no saying, well, you know, if I'm just going to have a little bit, I'm going to have a threshold, no big deal. It's my birthday, it's a vacation. No, 100% abstinence, entire abstinence. And then we heard the entire psychic change. The entire psychic change has to do with the restless, irritable discontent. That if I have this mental twist, I need to do the steps. How I get an entire psychic change is the 12 steps. So again, that if I just had an allergy, I could do it to Jenny Craig. My food plan is probably not much different than a lot of conventional food plans, to be honest with you. If that was my only problem, I don't need to come to OA. The reason I come to OA is because I need the steps. The steps treat the mental twist. The abstinence treats the allergy. And that's what that's by disease. So I am screwed. I have a body that cannot tolerate the food and a mind that tells me that I can. And when I'm in that trap, um, that's the definition of powerless. So what I thought for many years is step one is don't eat no matter what, no matter what, don't eat. I'd come into rooms and I'd say that. I'd say, today I choose not to eat. And what these first four chapters in the big book teach me is what step one is, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat unless I have a spiritual awakening. And it was that gift of that knowledge that made the rest the next chapter pertinent and the next chapter and the next chapter. Because until, I have to tell you, I did not work the steps out of virtue. I worked them out of, de out of desperation because I saw in the midst of a five-year relapse last year, in the last year, 10 and a half years ago, that I couldn't live with the food and I couldn't live without it. And Bill's story, it talks about alcohol was my master. Food was making every decision of my life whether I was eating or not eating. If I'm eating, all my parties had to have the food I wanted. If I was trying to be abstinent, I had to avoid certain parties. So it didn't matter whether I was abstinent or not. It was, it was that every decision in my life was based on the food and I could not live that way anymore. So I am so grateful for this doctor's opinion that told me who and what I am. And I'm so grateful for the rest of the chapter that tells me that there is a solution. Because let me assure you from the bottom of my soul, I know I'm a compulsive overeater, but let me also assure the 43 people in this room that today I do not suffer from compulsive overeating. And with that, I pass. Ooh, Kim, thank you. 
All right, we will now open the meeting for questions or for three minute shares. As this is a big book study, sharing and questions should relate specifically to the doctor's opinion, which is what we are studying this week. We ask that you please accept this guideline in order to keep the meeting on track. If you'd like to share or ask a question, please raise your virtual hand, which is under reactions or star nine if you're on the phone. And our wonderful Zoom host, Suwin, will call the raised hands in order. Melissa, would you please set a timer for three minutes for each share and announce when time is up, please? Thank you. All right, turning it over to our Zoom host, Suwin. Uh, we have Amy B first, followed by Stephanie S. Thank you, Suwin. Thank you, Melissa, Team Wednesday. Um, thank you so much, Kim, for that master class in the doctor's opinion. And I, um, you noted right there at the end that the rest of the chapter talks a little bit about the solution. I would like to pass my three minute share if I could, if you wanted to talk maybe for three minutes about the rest of the chapter that talks about the solution. Thanks. You're muted. The rest of the chapter doesn't talk about the solution. The, in, in fact, what I think is fascinating is doc, the doctor says, and what is the solution? And he doesn't tell you. He doesn't understand it. What he does is he gives you two examples of his patients. And what's common in that is it says that first they put down the food and next they picked up this, this concept because there wasn't even a book at that time. So the doctor's opinion isn't all about the solution at all. It's, it's letting us know that we're in this trap. And the doctor admits in multiple parts in this chapter, he has no idea why this is working. He doesn't get it. He trusts these people absolutely. So go to these other alcoholics because he doesn't have a solution for us. That's what I find is so humbling about this doctor is he admits after treating all these people, he doesn't have a solution. So I need to get through these first four chapters to totally diagnose myself. And the solution is to walk through the rest of the steps. So I'll leave that at that. Thank you, Amy, for the question and Kim for the answer. Next, we have Stephanie S. followed by Nancy V. Hi, I'm Stephanie, compulsive overeater and bulimic in Florida. Um, I've been coming to meetings for about two months. Actually, I think it's two months today. And I have about like 40 days of abstinence. And I feel like I'm exactly where I need to be tonight because I, Kim, everything you were saying, I felt like you were speaking like right to my heart. Um, especially the part about feeling restless, irritable and discontented um, without the food. Because over the last week or so, I've really discovered that my emotions are so much more raw. And I'm realizing more and more how much I was numbing out with food. I mean, and I think that I, I knew that, but it's becoming, it's like being thrown into sharp relief. I was talking to my sponsor earlier today about something that is difficult for me to talk about. And I could not stop crying. And I'm not a crier. But it was like the waterworks were just, it just wouldn't stop. And last week I had a day where I had a few relatively small inconveniences and my level of irritability was so high. And I just feel like my nerves are, are raw 
And honestly, I think it's a good thing because I think it's showing me, it's really like reinforcing what this chapter says. Like, this is a problem. This is a problem that you've needed this substance, sugar, food, to numb this. Um, but I have to say it's hard right now. And I'm really glad that there's hope and I'm glad that there's a solution and seeing all you recovered people uh, inspires me and keeps me hopeful. Thank you so much, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Stephanie S. Next, we have Nancy Z, followed by Michelle. Hey everyone, Nancy, um, Recovered Compulsive Eater, Bulimic, and Anorexic. Grateful to be here tonight. Kim, thank you. I, I hope this is not inappropriate, but I remember when I first came in, and like I was, I'm on my like second or third, I think, round of OA, um, but I came in the time I came in, I got abstinent, and I am abstinent still today. My sponsor had me listen to one of your talks where you did like a dialogue with someone on abstinence. And it was a, I think it was a friend of yours. Anyway, the point of why I'm saying that is because I thought, and I think this was before doctor's opinion, it was right in the beginning. And I thought, wow, this gal is really hard. I mean, it was just a discussion where you were like asking her all her questions about food. And you know what? That was an area nobody got into in my life. You know, do not mess with my food. I'll talk about God with you. I'll talk about steps, but don't mess with my food. And not too much longer after that, I'm sending my pictures of my ingredients to my sponsor, you know? And, and I just, I think back about that and how, what a miracle this, this program is. Um, when we went to your doctor's opinion and I thought I came in with a chip on my shoulder because I've been in AA for a lot of years and I knew this big book and you're going to teach me something, let me. And when we read Doctor's Opinion after my surrender, it was like I had never heard the chapter before. Um, and there's so much good stuff in it. I think um, I just really appreciate what you shared about the 10% and the alcoholic and, and foods. And that is so totally me. Um, you know, I have those foods out of my life today. The behaviors I, I tread sometimes, but I immediately know the awareness is given to me that I can't go there. And uh, so God is working in my life and I just, and I know he's working in all of yours as well. So thank you, Kim, for your share. And thanks everyone for being here tonight. I pass. Thank you, Nancy Z. Next, we have Michelle followed by Emily S. Hi, good evening, everybody. Michelle O, compulsive overeater, bulimic. Um, oh, I know I'm in the right place when I get emotional. Um, I feel I really relate to what was just shared. Like I, I, I feel like I'm reading the doctor's opinion for the first time, or not the first time actually, but I, I'm relearning stuff I've already learned. I'm having deja vu, and it's really scary because I have had these realizations. Um, and I can just see how insidious and manipulative my disease is getting in my mind and calling into question things that I have long ago concluded and understood. And as I've gone through step one before, I have such a hard time getting abstinent. And um, I'm just thinking in the doctor's opinion, I, um, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had worked a period of months on some problem or business deal 
which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink or so prior to the date, a day or so, and the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount. Um, guys, I'm getting married in a couple of weeks. And um, one of the saddest memories of my my life for a long time has been that um, I threw up on my wedding day. When I, I got married and I was 21, I was very young and I was super, super in the disease. And I was so ashamed of that. And, and like, it just represented the total dishonesty of um, presenting something to the world when I was actually doing and feeling underneath. And I'm so scared that the same thing's going to happen again, 15 years later. It's so fucked up, you know, and I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to like get this into my innermost self and and learn it in a different way than I've learned before. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciated, um, Kim, I've heard you speak many times. I loved what you said that the abstinence is the solution to the allergy and the steps are the solution to the mental twist. And that put it in a way, and, and that's, that's the hope that I have is that I've never done these steps. I've never made it through. So at least there's something I haven't tried, but I don't feel like I know how to get there. Um, so, ah, thank you so much for this meeting. And, uh, with that, I pass. Thank you, Michelle. Next we have Emily S followed by Randy N. Hey everyone, Emily S recovering, uh, food addict, compulsive eater in Florida. Um, first time at this meeting. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kim, for your share. Um, just have a, like a brief share. And then I have a question. Um, I related so much to what I heard about, like every decision in my life being controlled by the food. Cause I like, I've all like spectrum, like I'm on the spectrum in many ways with this disease. Like I'm anorexic. I'm also like a compulsive overeater. I'm an exercise bulimic, you know? And it's like, if I'm like going somewhere and I'm like starving myself and I'm feeling really skinny and I'm feeling really good, like I'm going to go. And then like when I'm binging and compulsive overeating, um, being a recluse and, you know, not leaving the house and just wanting to isolate. So I just, I related so much that, um, I'm about 33 days abstinent and, um, I feel like I'm going to crawl out, crawling out of my skin as you shared. And so yesterday I was feeling extremely crazy, like very strong thoughts about food and wanting to pick up. And I like really leaned heavily on the fellowship, you know, made a lot of calls, like, and I'm still abstinent. And one thing that came up is I, there was a thing that I was being dishonest about with my sponsor. It wasn't food related. Like I'm, you know, the out, the physical allergy has left my body, but I found that once I got honest with my sponsor about that, the food obsession stopped. So my question is, I know that like the mental obsession will be relieved through working the steps, but do you find that the mental obsession could also be triggered by like acting out in a character defect, like being dishonest. That's my question. Where are you in your step work, Emily? I'm in step four. I'm doing my step five on Saturday. So you're in the poopy diaper. <laughs> yes. So you should be feeling like shit because you're sitting in shit. So you're exactly where you need to be. Okay. Um, one of my favorite prayers going through the steps was God help me to feel comfortable about feeling uncomfortable because that's what's going to happen. You don't, you're not promised a spiritual awakening to step 12, which is why we want to get through these steps quickly. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that your sponsor is getting you through the steps, pushing you through step four. Um, 
what I, what I can tell you is that this fellowship is strong and I got a lot of relief from the fellowship, but I never got freedom from it. I didn't get freedom until I went through all 12 steps. So for anyone out there, don't settle for relief go for the freedom, but until you get to step 12, rely on that fellowship, you know, rely on the, you know, the, the way that I always describe it with the tools is if I have like a piece of wood and um, I have a hammer and a screwdriver and nails and screws, and I just put stuff in it, like what use is that? Right. But I have dogs. And if I want to build a dog house, I'm going to need these tools. So the question is, what are you building? So if you're working the steps, utilize those tools to support your step work but understand the step the tools are just a temporary solution if you don't get through the steps so i would just focus in on those steps understand if you're in step four waiting for step five you're gonna feel like crap you know you're now you're now soberly facing all the reasons that you ate so of course you're going to feel bad but that's normal and just keep pushing through keep listening to your sponsor keep keep speaking to recovered people even talk to you know talk to newcomers because you'll remember what it was like in step one if you're talking to people about step one too as well and thank you for doing the work thank you appreciate it thank you emily and kim next we have randy and followed by um, amy l Hi everyone, uh, Randy, grateful, recovered, compulsive eater. Um, Kim, I, I had a, uh, first of all, thank you for your share. I had a sponsee call me today and he's sponsoring people now. And um, I quoted you hopefully correctly in, a, in an answer to him, but I wanted to get you to maybe um, go into it more. I, I remember you said somewhere else that you will go through this chapter with somebody before they put down the food. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts about that a little bit because his situation with his sponsee was um, one of these people that want to do the work, say they're willing to go to any length and then just delay right from the out start. Um, so I guess the, the question is, you know, going through this before someone puts down the food kind of with like, the unspoken question that I have is like, does it ever motivate someone to keep going on or uh, if they're not really so willing from the beginning? Um, and yeah, I guess I'll, I'll stop rambling and let you talk. Well, that, I, the way that I think about it, Randy, is I think of Bill's story when Abby came to see him and um, he's drunk off his butt and Abby comes and they have this discussion. So I kind of consider the doctor's opinion the kitchen table conversation between Abby and Bill. Um, I assume everyone's eating that I'm taking through the doctor's opinion. I do it all in one shot in about an hour and a half. Um, and whether they're eating on purpose or maybe they're, they don't even realize they're not abstinent because they're following what somebody else said when they, they didn't get to look at their own foods. And then when we get through the doctor's opinion and we, we hammer out what their abstinence is, that's when I ask them, are you willing to put all those foods, ingredients and behaviors down? And as long as they say yes, we continue. Um, but to kind of go a little further, when, when you said willing to go to any lengths, I don't think there's anybody in a 12-step program that won't say yes to that because it's a saying. But as soon as you ask them to do something, they're going to say no. So what I find helpful as a sponsor is I make it really clear what I require. And that's the any lengths they're, they're, um, 
you know, they're, they're agreeing to. So these are the times I have available. Can you do that? Are you need to make two phone calls a day? Are you willing to do that? You need to commit your food on a daily basis before you have your, that first meal. Are you willing to do that? And then, you know, that's what any lengths looks like. And if they're willing to do that, then we continue. If they're not, I tell them to contact me when they're ready. So I think it's important for us to be real clear about what we, and, and also too, for me, Rainy, what I don't require. Like, like I'm someone that like, I, you're not going to call me and complain about your husbands or your wives. Like we're here for the book. We have a 30 minute appointment, 25 minutes in the book. That's, that's what we have to do. So I also let them know what I, what I um, require and what I'm not offering. Um, so maybe your sponsor can just kind of clarify because people are scared, right? They don't know. You know, if, if someone's not making their phone calls, I'm like, do you remember we, you know, remember that we agree that you're going to make your phone calls and then you give them a time to get, you know, get back on track or whatever with that stuff. Um, if they pick up, I always get quiet and say, God, can I be useful to this person? And I have to go back to step one. Doesn't mean I have to go back with the intensity. Maybe I'll review the doctor's opinion with them. You know, um, if they're in their step four and they pick up, you know, maybe I'll go back and review steps one, two, and three in, in one or two sessions. Sometimes I get, I get quiet and say, you know what? I don't think I can be helpful to this person. So, you know, when, especially when you're newly sponsoring, you know, I think one of the things I always, I always think of is, is, uh, is that I can't hurt them. Like we're so afraid of hurting people. All we're doing is opening up the book. I don't trust myself a lot, Randy, but I do trust the book. So I would just encourage responsee just to open the book and share his experience. Thanks so much, Kim. Sorry, I was muted. Thank you, Randy and Kim. Next, we have Amy L. Hi, I'm Amy L. in California and really grateful to be here tonight. Uh, thank you so much, Kim. Um, I, I've been in the rooms and out of the rooms for 30 something years. I, I'm back after a really long, difficult relapse. And um, just uh, tomorrow is my uh, 90 days of abstinence and I'm working the 10th step. And I, you know, when you said food was my buffer between me and life, I mean, I have cried so much in the last three months but I have, it, it still feels so much better being abstinent and um, without that buffer. But um, I wanna say that for me, what was different because I could not get out of relapse. I could not get out of relapse. And I, I really thought maybe I was one of those few unfortunates who was incapable of being honest as it says in the big book. But um, a sponsor from this meeting helped me and she ended up not being the sponsor I worked the steps with, but she helped me to see how much it was my disease that was making me identify out. It was my disease that was seducing me into thinking it wasn't so bad. It was my disease that was pulling me on a chain and I couldn't see it. I didn't see it. And somehow when she said that, that landed. And um, she had me write on all the ways my disease took from me, what it took from me. And the thing is, I, I, in one fell swoop, I surrendered managing my food. For me, my disease had progressed to the point it was not about flour and sugar. 
I actually had to give up fruit this time. And that was the biggest surrender. I cried giving that up, but it's been, it was such a relief. And I had to give up that one extra bite because for me, that one extra bite did not matter what it was. It could be broccoli. It was literally like playing Russian roulette. I could get away with it or it could lead to a massive binge and pitiful demoralization. So as long as I wanted to own my food and I so clung to that, the food owned me. And I just got back from a vacation in Hawaii with my family. I was able to join them on this beautiful farm, chocolate and fruit tasting. And I enjoyed every second of it. And um, that's a miracle. And I didn't feel at all envious because what I get today is so much better. So thank you so much, Kim, and every one of you for being here. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. We are now going to stop the recording. If we have anyone else that would like to take one last